Welcome to episode four of Junk Filter, a new podcast about film, music, politics, and jokes. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest for today is Anna Swanson, a Toronto-based writer who wrote a terrific piece on the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year for Film School Rejects that investigates one of the many knocks against the film. The reveal in the second act that stuntman Cliff Booth, the loyal stunt double and personal assistant to an actor in decline, who we've really started to like as a character, apparently killed his wife and got away with murder. It was one of the several bones of contention some people had with a movie that I think, and I think Anna thinks, was a damn masterpiece. And we're going to talk about the various controversies about this film, and probably yammer on at length about how awesome this film was. Anna Swanson, welcome to Junk Filter. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we really get going on our discussion about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think it's fair to let you know that we are going to spoil the shit out of this movie during our conversation. So if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and if you haven't, I think you should, we are going to ruin it for you if you haven't already seen it. Ladies and gentlemen, love goes on. Anna, are you familiar with the concept of the genre of cinema known as dudes rock? Uh, Yes, familiar with and big fan of. For me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was an instant classic in the dudes rock genre. Yeah, no, I definitely concur. I mean, you could name a few. You could name Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You could name several John Woo action films. Last year, there were several Dudes Rock classics, mm-hmm. but I think a new bar was reached with uh, Dudes Rock cinema with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, no, I agree. Those, those the, the dudes do rock. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your first experience seeing the movie? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I I went into this like fairly anticipatory of it. Um, really look forward to it. I'm pretty much a fairly big Tarantino fan, um, so I was definitely looking forward to it. And yeah, the first time I think. Um, I mean, at one point when we were talking about doing this, you you sort of talked about, you know, the moment where you sort of realized you love the movie. And I've been thinking about that question of, you know, the first time I saw this, which was, um, I think it was a Wednesday night. It was a couple days before it came out. The TIFF Lightbox did a little early screening thing, um, which I went to, even though I already had advanced tickets purchased for Friday. Um, but I think the first time I saw it, you know, part of me wants to say, like, I kind of loved it right from the get-go, even just the introduction where you have the bounty law set up and then the little montage of that day in L.A. of um, Cliff and Rick driving around and uh, Sharon arriving back in Los Angeles. Like, something about that, just the music and the vibes of it, I think it definitely gripped me right from the start, and I was definitely on board right from the get-go. Um So I kind of want to say I loved it from the very beginning, but I also think that the more honest answer is that maybe it took until the end, because I think that as much as I loved it and as much as, you know, there was never there was never a moment where I was like, oh, I'm kind of checking out here. Like I was, you know, engaged the whole time, but I think I was engaged very much with like a lump in my throat of just fear and worry over how this could end because I think like and I mean we'll talk more about Sharon in this film but I think just you know watching this 
beautiful, very loving portrayal of her. Um, I just knew, like, if this movie ended with me having to see Sharon Tate die, I was going to throw up in my seat. Like, I I knew that um, the whole time. And I think that it really wasn't until the end that I was able to kind of take a breath and, you know, really be able to just know that, you know, that wasn't what I was going to have to see here. Um, so I, I think maybe kind of the final shot when I was able to say, okay, this is the ending. I can take that breath. I can kind of like let it out. Um, that was probably the moment where I was really like, okay, I love all of this. I went to see it uh, in 70 millimeter when it was playing at the Bar City. I gave it a few days and I went, uh, I, I thought that it might be a little too busy for a few days. So I gave it a few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and then I, I went, the majority of times that I saw it in theaters, I saw it in 70 at the varsity and it was wonderful. It was, um, a movie that I was hoping would be good. I had a feeling it would be good. You love Tarantino more than I do. Um, I'm a bit of a hard marker about him. I, I mean, I don't dislike his movies, mm-hmm. but I don't go, uh, I haven't really gone too crazy for them. Uh, on the previous episode, I was uh, on with Adam Naiman, and we were talking about Punch Drunk Love and how it took a few movies for Anderson to click with us. Mm. We have sort of mixed feelings about some of the early movies. For me, Punch Drunk Love was the moment where I felt as strongly about his films as maybe some people felt about um, Boogie Nights or Magnolia. And Adam... Uh, really started to come on board with Anderson around uh, There Will Be Blood and The Master. Mm. When it comes to Tarantino, you know, I admired both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but I did Handsprings in front of the theater after I saw Jackie Brown, which I thought was a complete masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I haven't felt as strongly about a film by Tarantino since Jackie Brown, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I quite liked, but... I'll tell you when I suddenly realized that I was watching one of the best films I had seen in years. When Cliff drops his boss, Rick Dalton, off at his home and then jumps into his sports car and peels off and drives through L.A. at night on his way to his trailer home near a drive-in movie theater. And I could not believe that this movie was this good during that scene. I was basically in heaven, and I stayed in that headspace for the whole rest of the movie Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a lovely scene one thing that i really like about this movie and about tarantino at his best for me is how lyrical some of his films are how he manages to find for a guy who's so famous for all his dialogue some of the most affecting things that he does are how he uses atmosphere and silence Mm mm-hmm Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And I think that um, definitely this and Jackie Brown, I think, are his most kind of low key and in some ways like his quietest films, um, where I think there's a lot of just like lingering and moments and really just taking stuff in. It's not that sort of, you know, breakneck pace that he can kind of do. Um, But, you know, I I definitely agree. And I think... um, it's funny that you mentioned like Jackie Brown kind of being your favorite because um, 
the the second time I saw this, I went with a friend who, not at all a fan of Tarantino. Um, he likes Jackie Brown. That's pretty much it. Um, and like, definitely didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as much as I do. But like, kind of got you know a little bit out of it. Um, and I do think it's fun that you know even the people who aren't crazy about Tarantino, Jackie Brown is kind of their movie. Um, and I mean, I think it's great. Like, I think it's also my movie. It's probably my third favorite of his. Um, which like any. Pretty much most of Tarantino's filmography is, like, pretty high tier for me. So, like, a third favorite is still, like, Masterpiece. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think definitely both movies are quite, quite good. And I was also very interested in how Tarantino was going to address in his next movie the things that have happened in our culture in the time between uh, The Hateful Eight and this one, mm-hmm. which was primarily the loss of his... Um, main benefactor who was Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely big questions. I think, you know, obviously for the sort of like culture studies reception of the films, like, is he going to try and address this? But even just like from the producing standpoint, like what studio is going to, you know, bankroll him? Is he going to get like how much creative freedom here? Um, but yeah, no, definitely, definitely a, a, a situation to work around. And of course, you know, how do you deal with that? Right. When Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was first announced, and as his first post-Weinstein project, the knives were out immediately. Many people were very worried that he was making a movie about Roman Polanski, that he was making a movie about the Charles Manson murders, that this was going to be yet another Tarantino movie that glamorizes violence, and in particular violence against women. And then the whole moral question about what... uh, had also been found out about Tarantino in the, in the ensuing years. For instance, the injury to Uma Thurman on the set of Kill Bill and the stories about his ex-girlfriend Mira Sorvino and her experiences with Weinstein, which he must have known about and which he didn't do anything about. And I think that even when the movie came out, a lot of people were still holding a lot of the usual complaints about Tarantino against this latest film, which I thought, after having seen the movie, was fairly unfair. I thought that there was a surface read that was applied to a lot of the things that came up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. One of the biggest ones was that question about the revelation about an hour into the movie where you are informed that Cliff, the stuntman, may have murdered his wife. And I thought you wrote a terrific piece in Film School Rejects, which I will link in the description of the episode, where you really dug into that question. Was it something that was bothering you while you were watching it? Um, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment on the, art, on the article. Um, I don't know if it's something that bothers me. Because um, I think, like, I, you know, I'm... <laughs> I like the character, like, you know, it's, it's, he's definitely not written for you to be like, oh, well, you know, Cliff has never done anything wrong in his life, right? Like, I think I, I can definitely appreciate what that character does outside of that. Um, I think it's more just something that was kind of nagging at me of like, you know, there's definitely a straightforward reading of that scene. And I think that's where a lot of people were going. And I think what kind of bothered me was just these kind of threads that were running around my brain of like, there's more here. There's more layers here. There's more to it. Um, I I think what really where it really came from was I was thinking you know this this isn't meant to be as straightforward as I think a lot of people are reading it. Um, 
and I think that there's a lot to it. And I think that there's, you know, basically there's there's like two rabbit holes at play here where he either killed his wife or he didn't um, or, you know, he killed his wife on purpose. Like there was, you know, malice aforethought. Um, and if you go down that, there's a lot of different readings within that tunnel. And if you go down the tunnel of like it was an accident, there's a lot of different readings in that tunnel. So I think that for me, it was kind of, you know. I'm not here to say that I like solved the film or I figured it out or I have like a concrete answer over whether Cliff killed his wife. Um, for me, it's more just like there's, you know, for a, a 10 second scene, there's like so many ideas at play and so many different readings that can come from it. Um, and I really just find, found myself really interested in expanding on all of those implications. I like to be confronted with uh, a difficult wrinkle Mm-hmm. in a character. I thought that it was very, very interesting that he worked so hard for, I guess, 45 minutes or so to establish what a mensch Cliff Booth was, what a sweetheart and how helpful. And he left it sort of dangling as to why Cliff would be in this position of being uh, a stuntman, which we are informed at the beginning of the movie, but then we don't really see him doing any stunt double work for a while, and then comes the flashback mm-hmm. where uh, Cliff is sent over to Rick's house to go fix his TV antenna after being told that there wasn't going to be any work for him on this current show because of the stunt coordinator involved. Yeah, the gaffer's friends with Randy. <laughs> yes, the gaffer's yeah. friends with Randy. So then we're taken into this uh, very complicated flashback within a flashback mm-hmm. moment. And yes. which is your first hint that what you're about to find out is is a version of events, but not necessarily the truth. And even I'm going to toss another wrinkle in there. Uh, I, you know, there's flashback in a flashback, but it also could be not a flashback in a flashback. Um, so even within that, like that's not as straightforward. Um, but yeah, no, I think that definitely it's it's. And I think a lot of credit to Brad's, Brad Pitt's performance where, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Brad Pitt. Um, always have been, always will be. Uh, I think he's really incredible. Definitely more skilled as an actor than I think he's often been given credit for. And I think that this is like up there with his greatest performances. He's just fantastic. And I think he just makes Cliff so lovable right off the bat. Um, which, yeah, like you said, I think is totally wonderfully worked in to how we sort of have that other shoe drop. Mm-hmm. We we spend so much time establishing what a great guy he is, and then we're told, oh, by the way, he's a bad guy. Yeah. Oh, what's so bad about him? Well, he killed his wife. What? <laughs> yeah. And I even just love the way that um, Kurt Russell's Randy says it. Like, the dude killed his fucking wife. Like, it's just so, like, matter of fact. And, and um, I love Rick as kind of the audience surrogate where he's just kind of, like, stumbling over his words. And he's like, what? He's a war hero. <laughs> and, like, he doesn't really know what to say. I mean, another big hint is that this scene where the Kurt Russell character is telling Rick what's going on with Brad is whose point of view is that from? It's a flashback of Brad Pitt's. But exactly. he's not in the room. Yeah, so I think this is, I mean, I think this is kind of like the first, the first step of the layers because, you know, we have the flashback triggered by Cliff's memory of the events where he's sitting outside the trailer 
and then Randy goes in. So it goes into the trailer. So the question is, is the conversation between Randy and Rick a conversation that Cliff is imagining what they would be talking about? Like he's kind of in his own brain speculating the reasons why Randy wouldn't want to hire him, what Randy would be saying to Rick in that moment? Or is it more omniscient? Are we sort of going out of... Cliff's point of view when he's outside the trailer and going into like an omniscient perspective where we're seeing how that event took place. Um, and of course, either way you want to read that, whether it's, you know, Cliff's point of view or it's an omniscient perspective, there's like different implications to that. So that's kind of like the first layer of the rabbit hole, I think. And to add to the rabbit hole, um, to pull out and look at the whole movie, Kurt Russell plays the stunt coordinator, but mm-hmm. we hear him as a narrator voice in the first 20 minutes or so of the movie once mm-hmm. when Rick Dalton is talking about why he doesn't have uh, a, a, a way of driving that he needs a driver. Kurt Russell yeah. comes on and says, that's bullshit. He lost his yeah. license because he was drunk driving. Yeah. But then that's, that's it lie. for narration. That's a fucking yeah. lie. But then that's it for his narration until the second half of the movie when all of a sudden he's back as a a minute-by-minute narrator of the final... uh, So we hear his voice as the narrator, and then he comes back and, as a character, explains what's really going on with the story of Cliff Booth. So he has this sort of narrator credibility that's been subconsciously implanted in our heads, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, we don't know whose point of view that scene is. It's a Brad Pitt flashback, but he wasn't there for this. So Mm -hmm. what are we looking at? And then we see the actual incident in question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, when we go to this sort of, let's call it the flashback, the boat scene, um, which again, could be, you know, Cliff, like, speculating on what they're thinking about could be an omniscient perspective of how that event took place, the boat scene. Um, But yeah, you have Cliff and his wife, Billy, arguing on a boat, and, uh, you know, everything is a little rocky, it's shaky, and um, I love I love the cut. It's a great cut um, where the last thing we sort of see is just her yelling at him and Cliff just sitting there with a very like well angled harpoon. Um, and of course, we can kind of, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, but what I like is that it, I think it also ties into, you know, Tarantino's filmography with the uh, Pulp Fiction scene of shooting Marvin in the face where, you know, total accident, you just have a gun aimed at someone because you're holding it there and you drive over a bump in the road and it goes off. Um, So I think it's definitely in conversation with these kind of Tarantino-isms of like very awful accidents where people die because they accidentally got shot. But again, it's notable that Tarantino, Mr. Violence, Mr ears being cut off mm-hmm. does not show the murder mm-hmm. yes i mean you know if there's one thing you can say about tarantino it's that he doesn't shy away from violence um he's not opposed to putting something bloody on screen so i think the fact that we don't see that it's definitely to me the biggest indicator that this scene isn't meant to be read straightforward it's meant to kind of have these various implications um and that there's no sort of singular way of viewing what happened where like we don't know we don't know how that death played out um but you know i think definitely a very deliberate choice to cut away before we see her actually die 
in your article, though, you mentioned something that basically set off an explosion in my brain when I thought about the movie again, which is something that his wife says. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're on a boat. Yes. And uh, she, in her argument with um, Cliff, it mentions that her sister's name is Natalie. Um, and, you know, of course... Natalie, boat, death, the brain kind of goes to Natalie Wood. Um, and like, you know, the, the, the mystery there that I think, you know, I mean, her very, very tragic real life death, um, you know, happening on a boat, her drowning, you know, it's, it's a really awful tragedy. Um, and it's also something that we don't have an answer for and we probably will never have an answer for. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, it absolutely could have been a awful, tragic accident. Um, but of course there's always kind of been rumors swelling about, you know, was it not an accident? Um, and again, like I obviously don't have the answer for that. Um, but I think that, you know, the fact that there's that sort of long-standing rumor there and a lot of speculation around it, um, I definitely think that's part of, you know, what Tarantino is going for here, the inclusion of the name Natalie at this moment. But what yeah. do you think Tarantino is saying by invoking Natalie Wood's name in this film? Um, I think it's I mean, just... he's not saying Natalie Wood's name, but what do you think that he's saying by sort of playing with this kind of material? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a very, you know, subtle way. It's not super overt. Um, but I think it's it's a way to kind of bring this into, you know, the conversations we have about how this stuff plays out in real life. And I think that, you know, there's definitely two ways of reading something like this where, you know, on one hand, if like, and I, I don't know, I feel kind of like, I, you know, talking about the real life stuff, it's kind of, you know, it's it's a little upsetting. Like, I get that. Um I get that a bit. Um, so if Cliff did indeed uh, maliciously intend to kill his wife and went through with it and that harpoon going off was totally on purpose, um, let's say that happened and all of a sudden, you know, he isn't charged with it. We can assume he isn't or maybe he is and he gets off with it. He doesn't go to prison for it. Um, there's enough, you know, reasonable doubt. So he's either guilty of cold-blooded murder and what he suffers is that he loses a couple jobs, but he still gets to hang out with Rick and get this life and like everything, you know, considering the dude killed his wife, everything's still going pretty well for Cliff. Right. And it's really a thing about how easy it is for someone who is affable and good looking and connected to continue living a wonderful life after doing something awful or it's about how the harpoon accidentally went off and Cliff never intended to kill her. And now, you know, he's he's losing jobs and these rumors are always going to follow him. And it's kind of about how, you know, uh, suspicions that can never be proven will continue to haunt someone. So, you know, it can kind of go either way. Do we feel bad for Cliff's reputation being ruined? Do we feel like he wasn't punished enough for what we think he did? Um... Yeah, I think there's a lot at play there. Did you change your mind about Cliff after hearing this news, though? Did you start to not trust him? Um, I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like I like Tarantino movies enough that, like, someone killing someone else, I'm kind of like, well, like, that's that's the character. Um, 
I don't know. I, I like. I, I like I feel bad saying, oh, no, it didn't really change that much for me because I was still enjoying it. Um, but I don't know. Maybe in some ways I was like, I, I think I just like I don't I don't go to Tarantino movies because I want a protagonist that I'm going to be like more people should be like this in society. Like yeah, it's Tarantino, yeah. right? Like I just yeah. assume someone's going to murder someone else. Like that's kind of how it goes. I know. I mean, when it all comes down to it, we're all in a movie theater watching a movie about the night that the Manson family killed somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Like I kind of expect, you know, there's going to be some, some grisly stuff in this film. Um, and of course, like I hoped certain grisly events wouldn't play out on screen, but I kind of went and like, it's Tarantino, you know, you can't really go in expecting that there won't be violence and there won't be muddled moralities of protagonists and there won't be, you know, characters we shouldn't be rooting for but we are because they're just really fun to hang out with um but yeah i mean no obviously like i think you know there there's there's a lot to cliff's character where there's definitely um this strong implication that he's not a good guy and you know that doesn't make me like him but it's also he's he's a character right i started listening for little hints about guilt in, in Cliff's mm-hmm. character from that moment on. I noticed, for instance, that when he turns down the Margaret Qualley character's uh, come-ons mm-hmm. to him, he mentions something about how he's never been caught for anything yet. Yes. So he mentions, um, you know, prison's been trying to get him all his life and they, ha- and they haven't yet. Um, but he also mentions that he spent a couple weeks on a chain gang in Houston uh, for punching, punching a cop. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's done a little bit of service, but he obviously hasn't been to, like, a long-term prison sentence. Um, but, you know, and, and of course, like, in the uh, uh, Bruce Lee fight scene, we, you know, we get a little bit of information that Cliff is fairly familiar with what manslaughter is. So... Yes. A little bit, little bit there. <laughs> little, little threads you can kind of pull out and say, okay, yeah, there well, are like, these little, does, this, there, does this relate to that, right? There are these little indicators that he is uh, not necessarily innocent, if not guilty. Yeah. Um, but again, I like to be confronted with complexity a little bit with movie characters. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't dislike Cliff at that point. It did, though, make me a little bit more alert to sort of pay attention to him. And, and I thought that the flashback scene was very interesting because it gave you ammunition to not like the character. Mm-hmm. The way that he might have killed his wife. The way that he uh, was reckless on the set of that film and that he fought Bruce Lee. And that he even made fun of Bruce Lee's uh, martial arts style which, uh, you know, I think a lot of people that complain about Tarantino, what they're really complaining about are his fans. Mm-hmm. A lot of, I wasn't at all offended by the scene with Bruce Lee. I know that some people were, mm-hmm. but I th- was annoyed during the movie when some dummies in the audience were laughing away at the sort of making fun of Bruce Lee's like, oh, kind of sounds like they thought that was hilarious and I didn't think it was all that funny mm-hmm. but um, I wasn't I, I didn't have a lot of patience for the complaint that the film was disrespectful towards Bruce Lee I don't know how you feel about that yeah I mean definitely I think when you talk about like certain fans I think you know 
any movie you go see, if you're in a big enough crowd, there's going to be someone laughing at something they shouldn't. There's going to be someone being disrespectful. Um, I, it's happened, you know, when I've seen Tarantino movies. I remember um, shortly after I was at a rep screening of um, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, and there was stuff where, you know, um, there was, like, scenes where, like, um, Laura was, like, sort of being abused and people in the audience were laughing. And so it's definitely mm. not, like, a Tarantino thing. It's definitely not unique to his films. But it's something that I've, like, kind of experienced and definitely reminds me. Um, I think there was a similar cycle of discussion with um, the Daisy character in Hateful Eight and, like, yes. laughing at her being hit and, like, is that the fault of the audience? Is that the fault of the filmmaker for putting it in the film in the first place? Is that okay? Like, should, you know... Um, and I mean, I think it's like a complicated issue and I think people are going to have different um, bandwidths for what they're going to want to see and what they're going to find amusing and what they're going to be able to overlook in the audience. And, you know, I'm certainly not here to like tell anyone, you know, like you're like feeling sitting in a film and or sitting in the audience and watching someone on screen, you know, having the audience laugh at them um, over something that they shouldn't like, if that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you uncomfortable. Um, But I Mm -hmm. think that in the film itself, you know, I think it's important that the Bruce Lee scene comes directly after the cliff killed his wife scene. Um, Because immediately we're sort of at this point where we're probably of the whole film, the Bruce Lee scene is where we have, or I imagine most people do have the lowest opinion of Cliff because you're kind of just coming out of that being like, wait, he killed his wife. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's important to view that scene in context. And in that context, you know, we're kind of having our lowest opinion of Cliff. Um, and, you know, a lot of was, a lot was made out of, I think, you know, the idea that Bruce Lee was portrayed as very arrogant. Um, and I'm also going to point to um, Walter Chaw's really brilliant article on this. Um, I just what he wrote, I think, is better than anything I could say. Um, and I really appreciated his like perspective and take on the scene. And I think it unpacked a lot of ideas um, for me that I hadn't really thought of. Um, but, you know, I think Tarantino has his style. He has his thing. And I think a big thing for him is that he's not a filmmaker I associate with disliking arrogance a lot of his characters, characters that I feel he loves as a filmmaker, characters that he has a real fondness for are hugely arrogant. Um, Tarantino himself, I think, is very arrogant. I don't think he would dispute me saying that. You know, I, I don't think that to Tarantino, having a degree of confidence when you excel at something, that's not a bad thing. That's, I think, being very honest. So I think that, you know, the idea that if we read the Bruce Lee as being portrayed as someone who is arrogant, like he had a hell of a lot of right to be, you know, he, he was the best. If he is confident about it, maybe a little bit cocky about it. Like that was very well earned. And I think that, you know, that's probably the perspective that Tarantino would approach someone like that from. Um, Of course, you know, some people, that's going to be a turnoff. Arrogance isn't good. It's not like a wholly good trait. So I understand that there's complicated feelings over seeing someone that you admire portrayed as overly arrogant, perhaps, and that being a turnoff. Um, I I get that. Like, but I also think that, you know, going back to viewing the scene in context, 
um, you know, part of Bruce Lee's reputation is how good he is. And I think that a lot of that scene serves to kind of set us up for the third act where, you know, later in the film, we see a very high cliff take on three armed intruders, half his age, and still come out of it alive. Like, bad, badly injured and, like, wheeled off to the hospital and probably will come out of it with a limp, but, like, alive. And the setup for us to believe that this one dude can take on three people in a fight is that he can take on Bruce Lee in a fight. So I think in a lot of ways what that scene is saying is, like, Bruce Lee is kind of this stand-in as someone who fighting him isn't fighting one guy, it's fighting three people. Um, and I think that something like that is done with a lot of admiration for who he was and his abilities. Um, so, I don't know. I, I'm not here to tell anyone to not be uncomfortable about something that makes them uncomfortable. But I think that in context, there's more to it than just, like, arrogance is bad. Here's what I took away from the Bruce Lee scene. There's a few things. One, it might not be the real um, accounting of events. There are a couple of hints in this sequence that this might also be some kind of strange fantasy. One of mm -hmm. which is, it, and this was something that I didn't really pick up on the first time I watched the movie, but when I watched it again, I realized that it's about a three or four minute unbroken long take of Lee bragging Pitt basically calling him on it, and then they fight. And there's a cut when um, Pitt puts Bruce Lee through the car. Mm -hmm. That's the cut. Yes. And there's something weird about the way that the side of the car is damaged. It looks like a cartoon. Like if you were to throw somebody against a car like that, it wouldn't wipe out the whole side of the car in the same way in reality as it is in this scene. Mm -hmm. It looks artificial to me. Yeah. And it also kind of, it cuts out a little bit of this middle action where we sort of see Bruce Lee go for him and then it cuts and he's just sort of against the car. Like there's a little bit missing in the middle. Um, and definitely on purpose. Like I think, I mean, I will say, I also just like Side note, I think this is Fred Raskin's best work with Tarantino to date. Um, I love the editing in this film. Um, so again, like the Tarantino and the people he works with, they're too skilled and too deliberate for something like that to be an accident. Mm -hmm. So yeah, totally. And, and it's also within the flashback of, you know, Cliff remembering why Randy doesn't like him. Yes, this is yet another flashback. This whole flashback contains flashbacks within flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So there's something artificial and strange about everything that we're seeing. The, the did he or didn't he about his wife is not settled in the flashback. Mm -hmm. The, the beatdown of Bruce Lee and Brad Pitt is interrupted mm -hmm. because it's a best of three, but we don't see the third. Yeah. And it's also the sort of commonly agreed upon persona of Bruce Lee as being a braggart and arrogant and they even mention Muhammad Ali, who famously said that it ain't bragging if you can back it up. Exactly. So what I think that whole flashback sequence does, and, it, and which was why I had this gigantic smile on my face during the third act, during the, the final sequence where the Manson family decide to go kill Rick Dalton when they sort of 
run into him and they quickly change their idea about what they're going to be doing. They originally they're going to kill Sharon Tate because they want to start a race war or something like that. That's the original mm-hmm. plan. But yep. then uh, Susan Atkins, I think they give her another name in the movie, but that Susan Atkins says uh, that we're going to kill the people who taught us how to kill on TV, like this sort of psychopathic rationale for the murder. And so they find themselves up against Rick Dalton's stuntman, mm-hmm. who is the guy who does all the dirty work. Yep. They are going up against a war hero. They're going up against a man who's so tough that he even beat Bruce Lee. They're going up against a man who may or may not have killed a woman. And they have picked the exact wrong person. Mm-hmm. And I had a huge smile on my face. I spent most of the movie in, in just an escalating dread about what was going to happen at the end. I thought they were going to get killed by the Manson family. Mm-hmm. But I suddenly started laughing and was so happy when Brad Pitt is on acid, which is another hint that this is all a gigantic fantasy. There's no such thing as a acid-tipped marijuana cigarette. Like, that wouldn't even work. Um, who is just laughing in their faces at these horrible people, and I, uh, you know, at one point the guy's like, I'm, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. And he's like, nah, I was dumber than that. I can't remember what your real name is. Um, I, I just started smiling because I knew that we are now going to see the Manson murderers get killed mm-hmm. by Brad Pitt. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> and all and, this yeah. stuff was implanted in our brains about an hour and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just thought, okay, Tarantino, you win. This is so funny, and I cannot believe that you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely had a very similar reaction of just like, I. the more that scene continued to play out, I was just like a combination of terrified and really enjoying myself. And I think, again, I'm going to go back to Brad's performance. I think he plays it so well. Um, I love just even before they break in, um, him getting out the dog food for Brandy and sort of like waving his hand around. It's so funny. It's so good. Heaven Scent Fragrance by Helena Rubenstein. Spray it on and heavenly things happen. Heaven Scent. Splash in it. Laugh in it. Live in it. Love in it. You'll find Heaven Scent Fragrance at Helena Rubenstein counters everywhere. My experience with seeing this movie again was very intense because, you know, through my life, there have been movies where I've seen the movie and it's almost like a revolving door as the movie's over and I'm back at the theater very quickly afterwards to see it again. Uh, when when Blue Velvet came out, I think I saw it like five times in very first nice. run. I was like, got to go see this again. Got to go see this again. It was almost like church. <laughs> Like, okay, it's Friday night, so I have to go watch Blue Velvet again because yeah. I can't get enough of this movie. Yeah. And I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I was on the verge of, like, heavy, heavy emotional response to this movie that never broke. But I was a little worried about going to see it again because I thought that I would spend the entire second viewing crying. 
so because I've... it was so beautiful, it was so uh, lyrical and so profound and so risky and a risk that actually pays off that it was almost too intense for me to go and watch it again. So mm-hmm. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wound I, up watching I it think... when it was on Blu-ray. <laughs> And, of course, now movie theaters are closed. But, you know, when the world comes back to normal, I hope that this movie gets put out again because I was dying to go and see it again the whole time. But I was also trying to sort of keep it together because I was I would just think about things that happened in the movie and get emotional. So I Mm -hmm. thought it would be just too much, which Uh, is not my usual uh, experience when it goes comes to seeing a movie again. Mm-hmm. No, I was the same way. I mean, I think I saw this like seven times in theaters and absolutely I cried every time. I also like I rewatch a lot. Um, if I love a movie, I very much do the thing where I'm like, I'm just going to watch this like, you know, over and over again. And I'll watch something like a couple times a month. Um, there's been a few movies actually that I've seen for the first time, like at a rep screen. So this is what happened with Goodfellas um, last year, actually. I saw Goodfellas for the first time, had never seen it before, saw it on the big screen, went out the next day, bought it on Blu-ray, watched it at home that night. Um, So I love to rewatch. It's not uncommon for me to go see things in theaters, you know, two or three times. Um, I don't go see everything seven times. That's definitely an extreme end of the spectrum. But yeah, I think for me, I just every time I would watch the movie and it would end, I just wanted to sit there and wait until the next showing and have it just continue. I wanted to just like crawl back into this world, like some sort of reverse the ring situation where if I could just like get through the screen and stay there, um, I wanted to, I didn't want to leave it. So yeah, it definitely feels like another lifetime ago that seeing movies in theaters was a thing. But I am very glad that the last year where that was feasible, probably for the foreseeable future, um, that that last year I got to spend watching that movie so many times. I know. I had a wonderful 2019 at the movies, and and especially a few. And one of them was to get to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 70 millimeter and you know, shot on film. It was just an incredible visual experience and immersive. Um, It was almost like being put in a time machine and being sent back to when I was very, very young. Mm Because I was alive in 1969, Mm -hmm. but then Tarantino's a few years older than me. But it was like going back in time and uh, sort of, I think that the Tarantino and I must have had similar childhoods of listening to the radio in the car and having dumb, you know, the screen gems uh, (laughs) ident coming up at the end of a TV show. You know, there were all these little things that he was including in the film that were these ephemeral moments from childhood, which was my childhood. Like, Mm -hmm. he was too young to know all of this stuff, but this, when he was, what, I guess he was born in 64 or something, so he would have been like four or five years old. And when I was little... Charles Manson was a boogeyman. He was like an Osama bin Laden for people your age. He was this terrifying person who who ended a whole um, way of life. Like the Manson murders were just so scarring for culture. Mm-hmm. It just felt like pure evil, and made even more complicated by female murderers who were under his sway. And and he he loomed large in my childhood, and I grew up in Toronto. 
Mm-hmm. So I would think that for somebody like Tarantino, who was a, a, a boy in in L.A., he was it was just like just this horrible uh, specter, and that's why for for Tarantino, Manson is the equivalent to the Nazis. Like mm-hmm. he's somebody who destroyed a whole time in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, and one of the things that I thought was funny about all the complaints about the grisly violence, which I didn't take seriously in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that I think it would be more grisly for younger people who didn't really have the context for who the Manson killers were and the ghastly violence, which is way worse than anything that you see in the movie, which I also thought was a joke too, or a sick, you know, a black hearted joke is that the, the violence in Hollywood is extreme, but it's nothing compared to the crime scene of the mm-hmm. real incident. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, I mean, I think it's interesting that of all of Tarantino's kind of historical narrative films, this is the first one that takes place within his lifetime. So there's definitely that like memory thing going on. And I think in interviews, he's spoken about how, you know, exactly what you said, he has those memories of driving around LA and hearing, you know, KHJ radio. And um, yeah, I also totally agree with what you're saying about like the violence where I think that, you know, First of all, Tarantino does violence. That's kind of his thing. That's what he's known for. So if you go to a Tarantino movie, I hope you're expecting that. Um, But I also think that he does a very cartoonish version of violence, where I think that it is very much over the top. And he definitely, you know, when there is cause to, I think he enjoys reveling in that, um, as with Inglorious Bastards, where, like, it sure is a hell of a lot of fun to watch a cinema full of Nazis burn down. Um, and I don't think that Tarantino nor, you know, any fan of the movie is going to watch that and like feel bad. Um, and I think that here, you know, there, there's definitely, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying where like you go to a movie that's about, you know, 1969 and Sharon Tate and Charles Manson, that is a story that ends in violence more abhorrent than anything that could be captured on film. Um, And, like, there are definitely, like, you know, I went into this with, like, a fair degree of familiarity with the case and with, you know, Manson and those murders. And there's, like, definitely things there that I think are, you know, unshakable. Um, Something that I remember thinking about was, like, you know, one of the first um, officers on the scene of the Tate murders, like, found... Abigail Folger on the lawn and thought that the nightgown she was wearing was red because it was entirely stained with her blood. And I think, you know, there are details like that where if you read anything about these cases, like, you you know, you can't, you can't get over that. Like, that's not something that you can kind of just like put outside of your brain. I think there are these details that really stick. And I think that, you know, that's the violence that I think is so awful. Um, so to see that turned and to see, you know, these people who we know did this awful, awful thing, I don't feel bad watching them, you know, die by Cliff and Rick's hands. Like, I absolutely not. Um, first of all, it's a movie. Second of all, like, they're bad people, you know? Yeah. Um, they plan to go in and murder them. Like, it's it's it, within, within the context of the film, um, I don't feel bad. And within the larger context of knowing who those characters are based on, I don't feel bad. No, but, you know, I, I, I think it must have been very disturbing for... Uh, younger people who don't know 
don't recoil in horror when they hear the name Linda Kasabian, you know, or Susan Atkins, you know. Mm-hmm. If you have like a lot of knowledge, as I did, because the Manson murders loomed large in the imagination of kids that were raised in the 70s and, and through the 80s. I mean, and, and Manson was also a, um, sort of a counterculture, like punk uh, persona too. Like a lot of punks that I knew, if they wanted to sort of get a rise out of people, would sort of, you know, get, go buy the Charles Manson album because they put mm-hmm. out records of his music. Like he was a way of horrifying, a very shorthand way of horrifying the norms, the normies would be to just invoke the name of Manson, you Mm -hmm. know, who only died a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think definitely, like, it was the right choice to make this movie after his death, um, because, like, don't give him any attention while he's alive. Um, But no, I mean, I think, like, I see what you're saying, and I do agree with that to an extent, and I think that there's definitely, like, there are people who went to see this movie without a lot of knowledge of the true thing. And we're kind of maybe confused about some things, but I also think like there's a part of me that says like Charles Manson is a huge name that like, even if you don't know all of the details, like, you know that like it's, it's been in the news. It's a fairly well-known thing. I mean, I, you know, took classes in high school where we learned about that. Like, it's not sort of so beyond the purview of like common knowledge of history and, you know, how it intersects with pop culture that I think that, um, you know, it, I I guess what I'm saying is it surprises me that someone could go into this movie without that baseline understanding, even if it isn't something that you've kind of like researched before. Um, I, to me, it feels like it's a fairly well-known thing, but you know, everyone mm-hmm. everyone differs, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I I, I talked to some friends of mine who they liked the movie, but they thought that the violence at the end was just too much, like that they couldn't even look. Whereas I didn't really flinch too much at it because I it would be like being horrified to see the Nazis getting killed in yeah. Inglorious Bastards. It's like these are just these were sick and deranged people. And the, the, the escapist fantasy of the movie is seeing them get theirs. But what I found so poignant about the way the film was constructed and the way it ended is that we all know what happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as hideous as the violence is and as tender as the ending is, it's not what happened. Mm-hmm. It's a fairy tale and it's a fantasy and the idea that the movie sort of suggests at the end of this sort of reconciliation in some way between old Hollywood and new Hollywood, it didn't happen. And that was what I found so moving. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that sort of generates suspense in the viewer from your own knowledge of reality, as opposed to what is being generated by the movie itself. Like it's like a, a, it's hard for me to explain, but it's like, um, the, the 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 tension is generated from the the reality of our world but it's put towards movies which are which are the only place where the Manson family yeah. can get killed by a Hollywood stuntman no and i think that I, I think especially with you know the character Sharon in this film which i i mean i think 
there's a lot of criticisms that you can make about Tarantino that I buy. Like I, as much as I like a lot of his films, I'm not, I don't think he's infallible. There are criticisms I have about a lot of his movies. Um, but the idea that he does a disservice to Sharon Tate's memory, the way that she's portrayed in this film, I think is complete and utter bullshit. Me too. Um, I truly, the second that we first saw Sharon, um, I started getting emotional and the point where I started crying was seeing her um, dancing at the Playboy Mansion. Cause I just think, you know, the way she's written and the way Margot Robbie plays her. And I mean, I think Margot is fantastic. Um, and there's just, there is such a zest for life. And I, you know, a lot of criticisms were made about like how little she does in it. And I think that Tarantino has said as much as this himself that, you know, what what was robbed from her were these kind of mundane, beautiful moments where, you know, it's about how she just gets to drive around and live her life and, um, and run errands and pop into movies. And, and I think snore. That, yeah, exactly. I thought that was incredible, that the moment where you just see her lying in bed snoring. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, she's just kind of like living this very regular life that, you know... Of course, when we have the context of knowing that, you know, that scene is taking place six months before her death, it obviously is very much tinged with sadness. But I think that it's it's about relishing those moments with her. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if, like for all the love that I think the film sort of has for her as a character, you know, again, I think that absolutely feeds into why I don't feel at all bad watching the Manson family be murdered by Cliff because like, you know, you go to see a movie where the third build character is Sharon Tate and you know that it's 16, that it's 69 and like, you know, it's unfortunate that the most famous thing now about Sharon Tate is her murder. If you know one thing about Sharon Tate, you know that she was murdered. Um, which I have complicated feelings about because I understand why that is, but I also kind of wish it wasn't so. Um, and I'll talk about this a little bit because I also have more to say about that. But, um, you know, like, I, I just, I don't, I guess I just don't understand how someone can have the perspective where they go into this movie and they see the way she's portrayed and they spend, you know, however much time with her as this character and then the movie doesn't end with her death and they feel mad about the violence that took place instead. Um, like, I just, I, I want to ask those people, like, I truly do, like, would you have been happier if this movie ended with her real, with her death? Like, what do you, did you want to spend this time with her and then get to watch her plead for her life? Like, is that what you want? You know, and like, I mean, if you... And eight months pregnant? Yeah, I mean, and, and again, like details of this murder that you know i don't think can be you know unlearned where like sharon uh, she pleaded with them to let her give birth and then kill her like she basically offered herself like you know come back in two weeks and you can kill me and that's fine and like just stuff like that i I, you know I i can't get out of my brain no matter what i do and um i think that to see this very loving portrayal of her um it's really just something that we've never really seen in pop culture, as far as I'm aware, um, since her death. It's this side of her that we haven't gotten to know. And I think that probably, you know, 
if I had to say the best thing that Tarantino has ever done, it's the decision to show the real footage from the wrecking crew when Margot as Sharon goes to watch the movie. Um, because I think for a lot of people, that's probably going to be the first time that they actually see Sharon Tate in a movie. Um, I think, you know, she has a a handful of movies that I think she's very good in as an actor. Um, probably the most famous of which being Valley of the Dolls and, you know, people still watch that. It's a movie, but it's certainly not as popular now as like a Tarantino movie. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who hadn't seen a Sharon Tate movie going into this and they know her because of her death. And I think to see her, not only to see her on screen where, you know, she's, she's, I think a very talented actor when she, or she was a very talented actor. And I think, um, really had a a screen presence that was very powerful. Um, But more than that, what I, what I love are the little, the little flashes that we get of her practicing her fight scene with Bruce Lee. And we see like Margot as Sharon um, doing that. And I love, I love that, you know, it's, it's a small scene. It's not a huge, Mm. huge drawn out thing. It's, it's fairly quick in the runtime, but with that scene, we see, you know, how much she cared about her craft, how much she was committed to the performance that, you know, this wasn't just about being a starlet. This was about being an actor um, and that she cared about her craft. And um, yeah, I, I just think it's a really beautiful way to portray her. I agree. And I also think that it's worth pointing out that, you know, Tarantino, who supposedly disrespected Bruce Lee, shows him being quite wonderful mm-hmm. with her. Yeah. I thought the movie is great, but for me, I think the second act is some of the best stuff he's ever done. Mm-hmm. That's st- all of that stuff. The, the, this is how I interpreted the second act is that the three main characters go off and they all star in their own movie. <laughs> yes. So Rick Dalton, who we haven't talked about enough on this episode so far, Mm-hmm. Um, goes to do his Western with his crisis of conscience and his fears of like this crossroads in his life where, you know, he either goes off to Rome and stars in Italian Westerns and stays a movie star or he stays in TV hell playing villains. And mm-hmm. and he has a crisis, which of course is partly his fault because he got hammered and showed up hungover to the set. So we see him in this movie, which is uh, stylistically very strange, but then we realize that when he starts losing it, that everything that we've seen is his sort of disassociation. Like he's starring in a movie and there's a crew that we can hear, but we don't see. The camera pans around Mm -hmm. the room and we don't see a film crew, but there's obviously something strange is going on. Um, And then Sharon goes off to go and literally watch herself in the movie and to sort of, you know, to... This was also, I think, a moment that I thought was very autobiographical for Tarantino, the filmmaker, because if you have ever made a movie, you've been in a movie theater and you've just been living for the response from the audience. Yes. Uh, I thought that that was something that was about her, but also about himself, the thrill of, of being in a dark room with strangers who are laughing in all the right places and loving what they're seeing. And to me, that was some kind of confessional moment, I think, for him. 
Mm-hmm. That reminds me. Um, there's a talk that he did with Paul Thomas Anderson um, about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it was like a Q&A after a screening of the film. Um, and Tarantino talked about how when he would watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with an audience, you know, when it shows the clip of um, Sharon in The Wrecking Crew. And so I got to explain the layers here. So there's the scene of Sharon in The Wrecking Crew that's real footage. And then there's Margot as Sharon um, watching it with the audience around her and kind of wanting to know that her, you know, moments of comedy land and that people are laughing. Um, Tarantino talked about how when he watches this with an audience, he also likes it when the people in the audience with him laugh at those comedic moments for Sharon and the wrecking crew. Um, so just the idea that like he has that kinship with Margot as Sharon, like wanting to know that the jokes land and wanting to know that, you know, the work that she did as an actress is still resonating and people are still finding enjoyment out of it, even in something totally taken out of context, a movie within a movie, right? Like, they, I don't know. There's just something that I really, really loved about the idea that he has that care for how he portrays her, that he also wants to know that um, people are reacting the way he would hope they would react to seeing mm-hmm. her. Um, I just, I have a lot of fondness for that anecdote. No, it's a beautiful moment and, and it's a beautiful tribute to her. And I think that he treated her uh, story with nothing but respect and nothing but sensitivity. I thought mm-hmm. it was yeah. also profound that um, that Sharon is shown just being alive because we all know her because she died. So mm-hmm. he and fiction lives next to nonfiction in the movie because next the next door neighbor to the real Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate are the fictional people. And they, we mm-hmm. know all about the Hollywood that they live in because we see them functioning in it, but we don't really know anything about Sharon Tate, and we never will. And I thought that, mm-hmm. and Tarantino was in a no-win situation because if he had given her Tarantino dialogue or whatever and tried to make her into a Tarantino character, then he would have been accused of putting his words in her mouth and turning her into just another one of his characters. But when he... Mm-hmm. steps away from her and just observes her going book shopping <laughs> and uh, going to watch a movie, uh, then people say, well, he didn't give her anything to say. But, mm-hmm. you know, who really silenced her is, is Charles Manson's uh, gang. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it says a lot that I, um, Deborah Tate, her sister, who, from what I understand, is like, fairly protective of Sharon's legacy, very understandably. Um, She was, from what I understand, initially a little skeptical of what Tarantino was going to do and ended up, you know, really loving how her sister was portrayed and really, like, signing off on the film and and being quite happy with it. Um, And that, to me, is, like, a very touching thing that, like, she... Re- that like seeing Margot as Sharon like truly resonate with her um, who obviously like knew Sharon best. Um, I think that that's really nice. And I think that, yeah, like you said, like he didn't turn her into like a caricature, which I think is what a lot of his characters often feel like. Like I, I, I love them. I love a lot of his characters, but you know, he has that certain dialogue thing that he does and it's very identifiably Tarantino. 
Um, and it's very identifiably not how people in the real world speak. And I think that by not doing that to her, um, it makes her feel more real. I think she feels not just because she was a real person, but she feels real in a way that characters rarely do in his films. And even like characters based on real people. Like I think, you know, Hitler is kind of, it's a little bit cartoonish and a little bit of a caricature in the dialogue and how they do that in bastards. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think here she really feels real and human in a way that you don't often get. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's lovely. I think it's a wonderful portrayal. I think, you know, Tarantino and Margot Robbie, like all credit to them in working on this character. I, th I think it's just beautiful. I truly have like no complaints about how Sharon was portrayed. And I definitely went into the movie being a little worried about that. Um, because, you know, like I said, I, I like a lot of Tarantino's movies. I have criticisms of them as well. And I definitely went into this hoping to like it and hoping to not feel upset by how Sharon was portrayed. But I was also very worried about how it could go the other way. Um, so I had my, like, skepticisms. But I think truly from, you know, the start, like, I just, I, I was kind of so sold on it. You know, it, it just, it really hit me and I, I felt very emotionally connected to her portrayal of the character and it's even just like little little moments like um when she's driving to westwood um and she picks up the girl who's hitchhiking is that a manson family member or not no i think that's just, just some, some girl. girl okay because i read a review yeah, that was yeah, like, like and then she picks up one of the manson family people and i was like i don't know oh, about that no that's not how I think I that was one of I the mean, only I just, I just, hippies in the movie who was not a Manson family member. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of think of like '69 as like everyone is hitchhiking. That's just like some some girl who she yeah. picks up, and they're kind of like having this conversation in the car, yeah. and it's just a very sweet moment when they get out, and Sharon like gives her a hug and like wishes her well on her journey. Like I think it's just those little moments that really show how you know how sweet and how tender she was as, as a person and how um, amenable to this kind of counterculture she was, where she's like, she picks up this hippie who's hitchhiking and she wishes her well, you know, as she journeys to Big Sur, I think is where she's yeah. going and that yeah. type of thing. Um, and yeah, I just think like the, the, because it's not a big overblown characterization, I think that the little moments are really worth um, looking at closely. And in those little moments, I think there's just a real, a real delicate touch of how beautifully Sharon is characterized in this film. That kind of lyrical uh, uh, filmmaking is not what we would associate normally with Tarantino. No, quite the opposite, I would say. Like, he lets things just breathe and hang out. It's like, you know, also one, this is also one of the great hangout movies. Oh, absolutely. So at the, at, the, at the risk of making you suddenly cry, I want to tell you a couple of things that moved me so much in the movie that in unexpected ways. One is when she goes to the theater and, and asks if she can just get a ticket because she's in the movie. Mm -hmm. And then the, the girl behind the box office comes out with a little Instamatic and, and just says to her, maybe you should stand next to the poster so that people will know who you are. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very touching yeah. because we all know who she is because of what happened to her. Yes. And um, just going off that, that scene is also where, you know, she introduces herself by saying she's the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Um, 
And um, I don't know. I just think the way that Margot plays that. And there's also the moment where she's saying who she is in the movie. And she says, like, she's Miss Carlson, the klutz. And she kind of rolls her eyes. And I think it's a really, really good touch because it's this kind of way of, like, showing Sharon as being proud and also self-conscious of her career thus far where um she's like the sidekick the klutz and it's not you know something where she's like i'm this grand like thespian type like it's it's a small it's a small role it's kind of like a little bit something you might roll your eyes at and she's also really proud of it um as she should be right why not and um you know even just like saying like oh she's the girl from valley of the dolls you know i think it's 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 very sad, I think, and it works its way into what we, of course, know is to come for Sharon historically of, like, what she's known for, where, like, you know, in 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 her life, as she's identified to a lot of people, she's, like, the girl from Valley of the Dolls who ends up doing dirty movies, and then, you know, with her death, she's the, the victim. And, you know, there's very little understanding of Sharon outside of that, which, again, I'm going to repeat myself. I think that's exactly what this movie does. I think this gives us a real glimpse of Sharon, not even as an strictly an actor. Like, obviously, there's a lot of attention paid to her care for her craft. So, yes, Sharon as an actor, but not just, you know, Sharon as a victim, but like Sharon as a person. Mm -hmm. And it's also no accident that Tarantino puts to the sidelines and gives very little screen time to the two men who defined her, her mm-hmm. husband and her murderer. I mean, the guy who commissioned her death. Yeah. They are, they get nothing mm-hmm. in this movie. They're, they're Polanski. I don't, I, he would hear him talk, but I couldn't tell you anything that he said. And that yeah. scene with Manson is just a throwaway scene. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe some people didn't even, do they even say that he's Charles Manson? I don't think they do. Does he identify himself? I can't he remember. He might say, like, I'm Charlie. Yeah. But I thought that that was very sweet, that he just sidelined the two characters. Because everyone was all worried that he was making a movie about Roman Polanski, but he wasn't. No. He's, he's really a non-entity in the movie. Yeah, he's very much at the periphery. Um, and I even like, like, you know, as much as we talk about, like, like Sharon being kind of, you know pregnant almost about to give birth when she was murdered like i do like that a lot of the her pregnancy doesn't come in until the third act um and i kind of like that you know yeah i'm not quite sure of the exact timeline but i imagine like if he were to set something in you know february where she's aware that she's pregnant and that's sort of brought up like i i kind of like that that doesn't happen because i just really like that you know her her life isn't mourned or at least we're not set up to care about her because she's a mother which is what i think a lot um which is what i think can happen to a lot of female characters where like you know the value of their life is dependent on their ability or their existence as a mother Mm -hmm. um and i like that you know tarantino kind of shows you know how excited she is to set up her nursery and to be a mom because um, from what I understand about Sharon Tate, she really wanted to be a mom. And I think that that's a really beautiful detail that's in the film, but it's also not the reason we care about her. We care about her because she's like her own person who has her mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is just shown being alive, which mm-hmm. I thought was very radical of Tarantino. 
Absolutely. I, I, and I was doing a lot of eye rolling when I was reading reviews that didn't uh, recognize how sensitive and how tender the portrayal was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the very fact that her family is happy with it should be good enough for everyone. Here's another part where I almost cried. Um, the California Dreamin' sequence. We all know how much Tarantino loves Chunking Express. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was an allusion to that. And it was also, you know, this sort of... And it was sort of the harbinger of the end mm-hmm. of the movie. It was every... The sun's now going down and everybody's uh, off back to their directions and everyone's back home from the movie that they were in because brad pitt's movie of that day in the second act was the spawn ranch sequence Mm -hmm. i also noticed that hot august night line from the brother loves traveling medicine show or whatever i mean that's the future the hot august night he's taking the girl to the spawn ranch where all the murderers are yeah exactly and um so they're the jose feliciano version of the song that we all know from you know, how beautifully it was used in Chunking Express. And then when they get to that house, he's like, do you want to come in and watch my FBI episode? And he's like, well, I just assumed we would. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, dude, friendships. (laughs) It was like, this is how dudes are with each other. Like, this this is what I mean by the dudes rock (laughs) movie. It's like, and that scene was so beautiful when they were just sitting there watching the FBI and providing running commentary and just being like, ah, oh, th- this guy was the biggest prick just talking through the show. <laughs> that is, this- I, I think I've been talking about this since July, but like if I get, if I want one thing more from this film, I want that full FBI episode with Rick and Cliff, just like kind of commenting on it. Like it's a director commentary type deal, or it's like a commentary track. Um, I would watch that over and over again. Cause I love that. I just love even just like, you know, watching like, the FBI episode and like you hearing Cliff like, oh, it's a smooth leap. Yeah. It's just so good. I love that. I want to stay in that scene forever. It was just so wonderful. And this is, of course, a great segue for me to commend you because I believe that you were the coiner of the Leo pointing <laughs> meme, which comes yes. from that scene. Yes. Uh, can you tell, can you tell I, me a little bit about how that, because it's a genius meme. I've used it many times. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's you who did it. Yeah, so it was, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's the Leo pointing meme. And um, there's a Twitter account that was um, once upon a time in Hollywood out of context. And now I think it's like rebranded to Quentin Tarantino out of context. So it's all the movies. Um, and they just like posted that screen cap. And I definitely like any screen cap of the film that I saw, I was just like saving on my phone because I, I want more of it um and i love to have it in my life and um the uh the 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 discussion of the day was around the timeline changes and little women and like um you know people not being able to tell what year it was taking place or whatever and so i was just like here's like a dumb joke tweet about like me noticing the um timeline changes in the film and then all of a sudden it did quite well and it became a thing and yeah that's that's my accomplishment of 2020 (laughs) It was so funny, though. I, I, it's on my phone, ready to be deployed. <laughs> yeah, it, it goes around <laughs> quite a moment. bit. It's very fun when I'll see just like, like a post on like Instagram using that, or like political Twitter using that, or something like that. Like it's, it's definitely very amusing. We haven't talked enough about 
just how good DiCaprio is in this movie. Oh, so I have good. never liked him more. I would agree like, with that. I like him more and more as an actor. Like, you know, I, I've liked him in a few movies. I, I don't love him. Yeah. But I loved him so much in this movie. I thought I, he was wonderful. Yeah, I think this and, like, his work with Marty is, um, like, his Scorsese films are just the best. Like, this and Wolf of Wall Street, to me, are, like, his Oscar-worthy performances. Um, yeah. I know. I think he's great in this. And I think it, I love how well he fits into this role and just like the anxiety that he has with Rick and even just like little things like the way that he stutters in the character I think is really smart yeah um yeah I think he's great in this there's one little thing that I didn't notice uh the first time because my mind was blown like I here's another point where I was just like this is the best movie I've seen in eons was when DiCaprio was in his dressing room on the set of Lancer and then Sam Wanamaker, the director walks in and I was like, this movie is so smart that they even have a Sam Wanamaker character. Like that is deep cut, uh, film reference. Mm -hmm. And also played by Nicholas Hammond, who was one of the Von Trapp kids in the sound of music. Mm. And in the seventies, he was on the Spider-Man TV show, which of course I'm sure Tarantino and I both watched (laughs) when we were kids. And at one point, Wanamaker's talking about outfitting uh, Rick in an old-timey costume from, like, the, uh, you know, 19th century. And he says something along the lines of how period pieces are really about the present. Mm. I didn't notice that dialogue the first time because my head was still exploding that Sam Wanamaker (laughs) was a character in this movie. But I thought it was very interesting that he, I mean, that's, if you want to know what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about, I mean, it's about 1969, but it's also about the end of cinema, mm-hmm. I think. Which is, I mean, the end of cinema is playing out in ways that we didn't anticipate when we watched the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I don't know whether or not movies will ever come back to the way they used to be, but something has been ruptured with the closing down of movie theaters. And I thought it was so interesting that, that both the Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were kind of about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, like, eulogizing. Yeah. What was the last movie that you saw in a movie theater? Um, so I actually went to see um, Tenet, in uh, August, because we Ooh. basically, yeah, we basically rented out So you out saw the a theater. movie this year in a theater. I haven't. Ah, yeah. Well, so we basically realized that if you buy, like, the VIP theaters are the smallest ones. So if you just buy that out, you can just, like, basically rent a theater for, like, four people. So we did that. Um, but, yeah, that was uh, definitely a strange movie-going experience, just be sitting there, like, with a mask on and all that. Um, pre, pre-pandemic, pre it was um, The Way Back. Oh, so you got that in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The last movie I saw in a theater was just before New Year's Eve. I saw Uncut Gems. Oh, very nice. That, so uh, Gems, that, was a good, that was a good last movie to see in a movie theater. Yeah, Gems is great. That, that's another one that I saw three times in theaters. <laughs> um, but actually, I think my last movie of 2019 was, or my last movie seen in theaters in 2019 was um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the New Bev. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good finale, too. Yeah. 
have you kind of accepted the fact that we can't go to a movie in a movie theater? Like, have you learned to live with it? Is it something that drives you insane? Is it something you badly miss? Um, uh, yes, I badly miss it. Um, but I think I've kind of just adapted to the mentality of like, that's not going to be feasible for quite a while. I think I've definitely been living like somewhere around like a stage two type deal. I definitely have been, um, pretty indoors this year. So Mm -hmm. I think I've acclimatized to it. I do dearly miss it. Honestly, what I miss more than anything is just like the fact that movie theaters would force me to like not be distracted or looking at my phone or something like that, watching a movie. Um, Cause I think especially this year, like my attention span has gone out the window. Um, So I miss kind of being forced to like not have anything else to look at other than the movie. It was a very fun way to watch things. It's a challenge now to watch like really long movies because how can I focus on them? Um, But you know, one day we'll be back and it'll be safe. And that's what I tell myself. Yeah, I, I remember when when Tenet came out, I was kind of like, mm, you know, I probably won't die if I go see Tenet in an empty movie theater. But I also feel very strongly that, like, going to a movie or whatever is a privilege that you get to enjoy in a safe world. Mm-hmm. And if the world's not safe, what am I doing sitting in a movie theater? And the other thing that I wondered about was that it would the concept of the pyrrhic victory where you win, but at great cost, (laughs) you know, um, that you go see a movie like Tenet and then you spend the whole time being paranoid because the guy a couple rows back is coughing (laughs) or you're wearing your mask and you're watching all these guys running around with masks on (laughs) and, and you, and you're just, your head's not in the movie and you can't really give yourself over to it Mm -hmm. or it's not even that great a movie. And why did I bother and I just didn't feel like putting myself through it. It wasn't even so much that I was worried about, you know, spreading the coronavirus or being exposed to it, but that, you know, a movie theater is supposed to be a thing that you do that's a nice thing to do in a nice world or a normal world. Mm-hmm. And since we're not living in a normal world, going to a movie theater is not on the, uh, it's not on the table. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. to me. Yeah. I'm not yeah. judging you for going to see Tenet. It sounds like you did it in a fairly safe, controlled environment. But were you, did you enjoy Tenet? Like, did um, you guys have a good time is, I guess, my uh, question. Yeah, like, it was, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't really know what happened. It's definitely a movie that I want to watch again with subtitles on so that I can understand what it's about. But, like, there's some really fun action sequences to it. But, yeah, I think if we hadn't been able to basically, like, rent the theater as a personal screening type deal. I don't think we would have done it. I don't want to be like in a room with strangers and like, yeah, no, I I see what you're saying about like, just like movies are kind of special and like, that's for a different time. Um, I mean, once it's safe to do so, I'm not going to leave a movie theater. Um, I'm probably just going to move in and spend all my time (laughs) there just seeing whatever I can. Um, But yeah, no, it definitely feels like, a different world now. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not so much worried that we're never going to get back to that world. Cause once the vaccine is in circulation, things will start to become normal again. Hopefully all these sort of good social things that have grown from the pandemic will continue the way that, you know, for instance, 
it's so much nicer to be a pedestrian or a bicyclist now. There are all these sort of improvements to sort of life that I hope will continue. And I think movie theaters will be part of that. But like until I don't have to have my temperature checked at the door, I just I just it just feels wrong. Yeah, no, totally. For me. It's like I just want to enjoy myself and not be pretending that things aren't really happening. Yeah. Um and I I thought it was very funny how movie theater chains were like, okay, it's time to reopen. Everything's great. And then no one came. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was like, yeah, because you shouldn't have reopened. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, as much as like, I think it's unfortunate, you know, having to put off, like seeing a lot of movies that you're looking forward to, I think it makes sense. Like I'm kind of hoping that, you know, something like James Bond doesn't go to streaming or whatever. Um, I'd, I'd rather wait a little while and see no time to die in theaters. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing that I kind of have is that I, I, I feel very confident in knowing that that won't happen with mission impossible. Um, but there's a lot of other movies that I, I can kind of see going to streaming that I would rather see in theaters. Um, but yeah, if I got to wait a little bit extra for James Bond, I'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if uh, if Tenant had been on video on demand, I would have seen it by now. Yeah, but, you know, they I guess Warner's in, has they insisted on the theatrical experience trumping everything, which well, I thought I think was not even Warner's. Very, I think Nolan. <laughs> yeah, it's just Nolan. I think Warner's would have been very happy to release it onto streaming, but he probably like refused to allow that to happen. Right, but uh, it was very <clears throat> very interesting how. Um, you know the 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 covid thing and the sort of the pandemic and the shutdown of the world and everything is sort of something that it seems like a plan that bane would have had in the dark knight rises <laughs> yeah like, it, it is it is just there's something like, very nolan movie like about the world that we're living in yeah and it's also just like strange to be dealing with something that you feel like there's no personal precedent for mhm like who who saw pandemic? Who had that on the bingo card? The also the weird idea of Nolan sort of prioritizing the theatrical experience even during this pandemic and like almost like they were all like he and Warner's were playing chicken with a virus. Mm. Like, okay, well we're gonna put it out in July. Well now we're gonna put it out in August. Yeah. Oh now we're gonna put it out in September. Be- as if the virus was gonna go, well, I I want to see Tenet, so maybe I'll just stop invading the whole world yeah. <laughs> so that we can watch Tenet. It was yeah, very, no, it's... You, you know, you can't really negotiate with this disease mm-hmm. too much. Um, but, you know, it, it feels to me like a sort of a small price to pay to not have access to going to movie theaters. My hope, though, is that they'll still be around when the world reopens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Like, I want to go to the Royal again and see a movie. And so, you know, will the Royal still be around when this is over? Will, mm-hmm. I assume Lightbox will still be around. Also, we're going to be watching lots of movies about the coronavirus. That's my other fear. Is that yeah, all movies not going to be as be into about... those. Not looking forward to that. <laughs> it's like, you get, I was joking about all the movies at Sundance this year will all be called Six Feet Apart. And oh, God. Social Distancing. Yeah. You know, the sort of rom-com Or, you know, movies that take place in a Zoom meeting and stuff like that. You know, we're just going to be dealing with coronavirus themed movies for the next couple of years. So the irony will be that 
after not getting into a movie theater for a while, we're going to be watching movies about the coronavirus in a movie theater for years, yep. too. <laughs> yep, for sure. <laughs> One of the things that I always ask my guests, um, because we have all this time to sort of binge watch and and load up on sort of, you know, cultural things that we may have missed and things like that, and we have plenty of time to think about these things, has there been um, something that you've seen during this pandemic and all this that has really struck a chord with you, like a film or a book or a song? Uh, yeah, so I I think I have a pretty good answer for this. So I watched The Sopranos for the first time. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I, I it was one of those things I had never seen it. Um, not for any real reason, just because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bad at watching TV. It takes me a long time to get to stuff, and I'm not good at keeping up with stuff. Um, and I think I always thought of The Sopranos as something that like I knew I would like. It was just like seemed somewhat daunting to start it and then finally in I think it was July it was just like all right starting it tonight we're just gonna do it and um loved it obviously because it's like the best show of all time did you did you watch the whole thing yes I think it took me about three months to finish the whole thing um just wonderful like the best show um I miss the characters dearly uh I cannot believe that this was the case but i was pretty much not spoiled on anything oh good Um, i didn't know any character deaths uh really what i knew about the ending was that it ended with a cut to black but i didn't really know what happened before that um so i got to watch it with pretty fresh eyes i would say um and yeah i mean i won't spoil anything here i guess um but yeah no it's it was wonderful it was really nice to kind of just like have something to look forward to like I knew like okay I have a new Sopranos episode and I can start you know season four and like that type of thing um but you know that was lovely and also just great to like finally catch up on it and be able to like talk about it with people like just have those conversations where like we can you know discuss things that go on because I also think that like a lot of it is very unforgettable so if you you know last watched this show like 10 years ago like you still kind of remember it you get so, sucked right back into um, it too when you rewatch yeah and there's definitely conversations i've had with like friends where we were kind of just like i was like catching them up on how i've been watching it and you know we were talking about like oh well what's your favorite episode and it just became like a 20 minute thing of naming like every episode being like that was a great one this was a great one you know like as yeah it's it's a wonderful thing to um exist and i'm glad that i've seen it now so that's definitely been my favorite thing that i've done this year um while in quarantine is finally watch that and of course it was even better than i anticipated well this has been wonderful i hope that um people if you haven't seen once upon a time in hollywood i hope you weren't listening because i think we ruined (laughs) the movie for you yeah probably but if you have watched it hopefully you'll watch it again and enjoy it over and over again I mean, I will. It, yeah, I, I will too. And I hope when movie theaters reopen they, that they uh, bring back the 70 print so I can go watch it again too. <laughs> because I was in heaven and, I, and I, I'm almost never in heaven when I watch movies. But when I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was just beside myself with happiness. And I really wanted to talk to you about it because you love it so much. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm very honored. Where uh, can people find you on Twitter? 
Uh, Twitter, um, Anna Swanson. Uh, handle is A-N-N-A-S-W-N-S-N. Um, on the internet, often at Film School Rejects, um, usually posting about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to put a link to your piece, Did Cliff Booth Kill His Wife? And I would say that you should all read it because it's really wonderful. What did you say? It was sort of, you, you were telling me about your roommates yeah, while so, you were developing um, she, this idea? She compared this to um, the uh, scene in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia of Charlie just like at the board connecting everything in the Pepe Sylvia scene. Um, that's basically how I was talking about it, where I would just be saying to her, well, if, if it's this, then it's that. And if we take this reading, then there's this implication. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm very glad I kind of got those ideas out onto paper. It doesn't read like a crazed rant <laughs> of a conspiracy I have a good theorist. Editor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anna. Oh, thank I you. I would love to have you back on the show sometime if you would love to come back. Anytime. Thank you so much. Um, I guess we'll say goodbye here. For only $5 a month, you can support this podcast by going to our Patreon. The Patreon link is available at our Twitter account, which is JunkFilterPod. And I'd also like to thank Marker Starling for the music for this program. We are going to be knocking out another episode in a few days. Thank you very much, Anna. And it was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you again next time. <laughs>